Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from McGregor, Iowa. I think this will be the last episode that we record from our remote working destination this summer. And I could not be more excited to welcome an extra special guest today, a longtime friend and business school classmate, Marcelia Freeman. And I'm welcoming Marcelia as a member of the board of directors for Florida A&M, her alma mater, uh, which is the third largest historically black university in the United States. Uh, and it is a land grant institution that is the only public historically black university in Florida. And the reason that I'm welcoming Marcelia is because in late July, my social media started blowing up when I saw my old friend Marcelia addressing the class of 2021, or maybe it was 2020, I forget which class it was, but she was addressing uh, the Florida A&M class in a commencement speech. And she gave an absolutely incredible, inspiring speech and also issued a $100,000 matching challenge to encourage and inspire those students to start giving immediately. And so with all of that said, Marcelia, it is great to see you. I know it's bright and early uh, over in California, and I just want to thank you for sharing your time with us. I appreciate the welcome, and, and that intro was uh, pretty fantastic. I'm going to put you in my pocket and take you around with me. There we go. So before we get into what you're up to today and the board work that you're doing, I have really enjoyed with all of our guests, just better understanding your own decision to attend your college, in your case, FAMU. So take me back to Marcelia, junior year of high school. I didn't know that person. Who was she? What was she into? And what led you to FAMU? Sure. Well, the year was 1999 and uh, I lived in Montgomery, Alabama. I was uh, into all kinds of extracurriculars, but my absolute favorite was the model United Nations. Um, I used to play soccer on the boys team. I used to do a lot of stuff, but that was by and large my favorite. Um, and I wanted to study foreign policy. I wanted to be an ambassador. And I got into Georgetown as my like number one school. I could not wait to go there. I got my paperwork and my mom, my dad, who are both teachers, looked at me and said, listen, You've got all these full scholarships. Choose one. Like, we can't afford to send you to Georgetown. Choose a full scholarship. And by the way, you're going to FAMU. Uh, so the choice was not mine. It was made for me. But it was the best choice that could have happened. So I, I go to FAMU, down to Tallahassee. My parents take me. And they don't have a foreign relations program. They don't have international business. I'm like, I'm lost. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I enrolled in the School of Business and Industry. SBI, which was world-renowned at that time. It was really world-renowned. We had more Black National Merit Scholars and National Achievement Scholars than Harvard, than Yale, than Princeton. We had a really incredible program that every Fortune 500 was recruiting from. And um, the president of the university recruited me to go there. And I decided, well, if I can't do what I really want to do, I'll study the intersection of math, which I love, but I'm not great at, and business. Uh, so I chose finance. And there we have it. Here I sit today, um, sitting at the intersection of math and finance or 
math and business, which is finance. And I don't regret uh, any step along the way. I actually really very much appreciate my parents pointing me towards Florida A&M. And so when you say the president recruited you, what does that mean? Yeah, so that the president uh, of the university, Dr. Humphreys, who actually passed right before graduation of this year, um, was heavily involved in the recruitment of, he was building building a really great school. At that time, Florida A&M had 15,000 students. Today, it has something more like 11 or 12,000 because it it was downsized a little bit by presidents beyond him, but he built a university that could compete globally, that can compete with anyone um, to include the Ivies. And he basically scoured the country for really smart, talented black students. And he would make calls. He called my dad. He's the, he's the reason I'm at Florida. I went to Florida A&M because call my dad and my dad said, well, <laughs> that's where you're going. The president called me. Um, so you know, he he was a, the chief fundraiser. He was the chief recruiter. He was all of those things for Florida A&M. Um, so that, that's how I ended up there. That's amazing. And when you think about your first year there and just getting situated, um, was it an easy transition? Was it a challenge? Um, what was the vibe at that moment? Yeah, it was probably more of a challenge for my mom dropping me off. Uh, I was so excited to have independence because my parents are, they're not incredibly strict, but they're, they focus on discipline and just um, not discipline in a corporal way, but discipline in, in terms of getting things done. My dad was in the army. So I was just glad to have freedom from them and my brothers. <laughs> have no two way. older brothers. If you have two older what? brothers, which I didn't, I didn't recall, um, there's no way your parents ever had to discipline you, Marcelia. Like, there's no way. Listen, they were all about you uh, making straight A's. And if you don't make, if you make them, you should have made, you know, if you make them, there's no congratulations because you should have. And if you don't, then it, it's over for you. No, no after school, nothing. So model United Nations would have been gone. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I was, I was excited to kind of get out of the chicken coop um, and I get there. And I think what I realized very quickly about Florida A&M and the student body, we all, you know, 95% of us may have been black, but we're also different. So uh, there was, as, as there's a misconception that HBCUs lack diversity uh, and uh Florida A&M, particularly because it's a public school, debunks that myth day after day after day. There is so much diversity within that student body, uh, different social classes, different levels, different interests. Um, and I think I quickly realized that. And it's something that I appreciated every day of school. And um, honestly, every day that I meet a, a FAMU alum, because we are so different, we have such different backgrounds um, and the diversity is wide and bright and beautiful there. And so as you advanced through your four years, what were some of the highlights, um, whether it was student leadership or just great experiences that you had along the way, what do you think back uh, about most fondly? Yeah, well, um, 
I'd have to say in the business school, we had, you know, we had these companies that student run companies that we had to run. And the company that I was the CEO of was SBI Investments. That was probably my most favorite kind of school activity then. Um, you know, I, I won student finance student of the year in my last year, which I was actually pretty proud of because, you know, I was the only woman that was hyper-focused on finance among a bunch of guys, you know, that went to the street with me when I graduated or before me or after me. Uh, but I was really always the only, the only girl, um, which I didn't mind at all. And I still don't mind because work in a pretty male dominated business. Um, so I would say those two things I was incredibly proud of, but I think for me, the highlight was getting to know people, having fun. That is like the most fun time of my life, which I can imagine for most people, it's the most fun, but it is absolutely the most, I was broke, but I had so much fun every single day, every single day, um, with a lot of really great people that were, you know, in school, out of school, visiting. Um, so I, I'd have to say the people were the highlight for me. And then being in the business school, walking among giants, uh, and, and being able to like, feel like I belonged and, and compete with them was also a highlight. And it led you to an amazing opportunity to join JP Morgan at a very interesting moment. You know, we're talking about 2005 when you graduated, really the beginning of a pretty, pretty significant boom time that led up to the financial crisis, which we can talk more about, but um, going to uh, JP Morgan in general, and I think specifically some of the folks and, and meetings that you were exposed to had to be a pretty uh, radical uh, shift from uh, growing up as a, you know, army brat with uh, teacher parents um, in, in Montgomery, Alabama. It certainly was. So when I graduated, I started at the JP Morgan private bank, um, covering, you know, what is, helping. what is the JP Morgan private bank is our audience is primarily fundraising professionals that might not, you know, know, um, just offhand sort of what that specific part of JP Morgan does. Sure. It's, it's the part where fundraisers get need to get to know. Uh, it is the, uh, the bank that supports and, uh, uh, supports the ultra high net worth. So 250 million or more in net worth. Um, and it's the bank that essentially sees after their trust and estates, after their investments, after their credit lines and, you know, margin uh, loans and all these things. Um, and so I worked with a woman who really cultivated relationships with wealthy families in the Northeast. And uh, you know, that's cool. That sounds really cool and fancy. And, but I think what I loved the most is every morning there was a 7am call that the investment professional sat on. And I got to work every morning at 645 sitting at my desk. So I could listen to that call about the markets and about what was happening. And then every morning at 8am, there was a private bank wide call where they would talk about kind of the priorities of the day. Um, and about the, you know, the people that would, um, that would be cycling through, whether it was Leon Black or Henry Kravitz or, or folks like that. And that's where I learned about what a hedge fund was, what private equity was, and really got exposure to 
the various asset classes and the tools that people use to manage money. Um, and I was just enamored and in love. Uh, I worked there for a year. Um, I, I did two summers there and then I did a full-time year. So it felt like three years. Everybody knew me. Um, and I actually ended up working um, after that in the office of the chairman. So my whole uh, reason to be in that bank was to learn. And I used to do projects for everyone so that I could learn more. You got a project, Marcelia is going to do it. Uh, she's going to stay late. She's going to come in early. And it was my way to one network, but two, to really learn what everybody was, you know, could teach me, um, whether it was the soft skills or the more technical skills. Um, and people noticed, you know, this like young black girl from Florida A&M from Montgomery, Alabama, a little country bumpkin uh, was, was around just, you know, offering herself and doing lots and lots of work. So people noticed, and I, I, I tried to do a great job every day, like zero mistakes. Um, and so there was a woman that used to run the JP Morgan Chase Foundation that used to work closely with one of the, uh, one of the former CEOs because he was ultra rich. And so there was a path, a crossing of paths there between um, a client uh, the head of the foundation and my banker. Uh, and I got to know this woman and she said, hmm, you should really think about joining the office of the chairman. And at that time, I had just gotten a seat on the investor desk. So that the long desk where you have zero privacy in one drawer and you've got double screens, I couldn't wait to sit on that desk. Uh, and I thought, office, uh, office of the chairman, what is that? I have no interest. Um, but I went, I talked to the guy that was basically Bill Harrison's chief of staff, and I thought, hmm, this job could allow me to learn even more. That, that was like my goal every single day. And so I jumped on it. I jumped on the opportunity to work on a three-person team that supported Bill Harrison and then Jamie Dimon. Uh, and I did that for two years and, and got crazy exposure. And as you're right, right before the financial crisis. So right when I feel like JP Morgan took over the street, right? They, they became 180,000 employees with the acquisition of Bank One um, and previous acquisitions. Jamie Dimon was the darling of Wall Street and <laughs> has, has held his reign there uh, for, for a very long time. And, and I had a chance to work with him and all of his direct reports. It was pretty amazing. It's, uh, I mean, I am sad that I am learning all of this right now, Marcelia, and it is a reflection of how sometimes we in business school would sort of start at the present and focus so much on the future that we didn't Absolutely. always get a chance to reflect on the past, but I'm really glad we're doing this. And I, I do want to just um, spend a little bit of time on the experience that you had in the private bank, because there are a lot of parallels when you think about relationship management for the ultra high net worth from an asset management perspective. Sometimes philanthropy right. can be a dedicated part of that, but um, it isn't always a, a, a world that the fundraising community truly has a window into. You've had a window into both fundraising by way of your work on the board at Florida A&M, but also uh, in your work at, at JP Morgan in the private bank. And I also just have to say, like, first of all, as a fellow country bumpkin who spent some time in the private equity world and did get exposure to truly uh, the ultra high net worth community by way of the folks that I was working with, 
what was it like for you when you just started to realize truly how much money people have or some people have? And, you know, how do you keep your cool um, as a country bumpkin uh, in that environment, looking at all those zeros? Yeah, well, I mean, I think money doesn't really phase me. Uh, after a certain point, after you see so many people with it, um, it to me, it it's it. There's zeros. There are dollar signs, um, and I I try to think more about the people uh, than than their bank accounts, uh, and think about how they treat people, how they're treated, what their interests are, how they help other people, um, and so yeah. Uh, to be honest, I, I think, and because I work with institutional investors today, which far outstrip individual wealth, uh, numbers don't matter. <laughs> Money doesn't matter to me anymore. Um, not necessarily what people have. I, I'm not, uh, it, it's not impressive, um, to be honest. Um, so that's, that's how we get past that. <laughs> And so when you think about the skills that make somebody really successful in the private bank, the best relationship managers, because there's a balance of uh, how do I um, do right by the client, but also we've got our financial goals and we need to achieve our assets under management targets, et cetera. And um, what are your reflections when you think about if you could grab some of those folks from the private bank and drop them in as FAMU fundraisers, um, what would you, uh, what would you hope they could bring based on your experience? Yeah, I think the best relationship managers, uh, and I think this is across many industries and lots of businesses are folks that can bring to bear the right resources at the right time. Uh, folks that can speak to a specific interest or goal, um, and help figure out a solution, even if, even if there wasn't a problem to begin with, or even if someone didn't know there was a, a problem. So, you know, I think the best private bankers could look into what people were saying and doing and really pull out what mattered to them and focus on it. Uh, I think that university fundraisers maybe could learn the lesson of not just dialing for dollars and asking for a donation, but better understanding their targets, what motivates them, and speaking to that specifically, tying that into the fundraising plan, the fundraising strategy, to where it's more organic, the conversations become more organic, but by and large, it's more effective and efficient. Well said, and uh, I hope that everybody re-listens to that, um, uh, that clip. Marcelia, as we uh, proceed in your career path, the next step was business school. That's where we met, fall of 2008. Uh, we're all feeling really good. The financial crisis is going on as we're uh, getting to know each other and right. uh, incredible timing. But, um, uh, you know, when you think about the decision to apply to Harvard Business School and what it was like when you were um, accepted? Was it an easy decision? Did you know you wanted to do that for sure? And uh, tell me about your initial reflections, even as we joined Section C back in 2008. Yeah, well, it was an easy decision. <laughs> Jamie Dimon went to Harvard Business School. 
a woman named Mary Erdos who ran the private bank, went to business school. And in them, I saw excellence and I thought, ooh, I have to be just like that. Now, in hindsight, that probably wasn't the best like rationale as to why I wanted to go to Harvard, but that was it at the time. Um, Jamie Dimon's direct reports, you know, like if he had 10 direct reports, eight of them went to top business schools. And I used to work with them and I used to think, hmm, if this is the way to get to the top, well, that's the way I'm going to go. Um, and Harvard is kind of the only place I wanted to go um, because of the case study method, because it was different. Um, and to be honest, because it was seen as the best, right? Um, and so that was that was why I went. Um, I remember working, there was a woman at JP Morgan who shall remain nameless, who said to me, you know, maybe a week before we got our acceptance letters, she said, when you don't get into Harvard, the world won't be over. And I thought, mm-hmm. um, and then the next week I got in. So it was, it was the most amazing thing that could have happened to me. I felt like I won the lottery ticket and I actually still feel like I won the lottery ticket all these years after. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, walking in first day, I was petrified. I was petrified. There were 900 really smart, fantastic people. Um, some of them nice, some of them not so nice. They were probably all scared just like I was, but they didn't let on to it. Um, and it was, it was for me a harrowing two years of I'm shy naturally. So it was tough to get to know people. It was intimidating. Some of our professors were very intimidating. Um, and I just kind of like got through those two years and, and tried to make the best of it. Um, in hindsight, I wish I would have been a little bit more outgoing, but I clam up in situations like that. I become a little, a little, um, uh, shell and a little tortoise and I just get smaller and smaller. Um, and I don't know if I, if I had to do it again at that time in my life, I could have done any better today. Obviously I would kill it. I'd probably be a Baker scholar. (laughs) Maybe not, but, (laughs) um, back then it was, it was a tough two years for me to, to maneuver and, uh, feel like I was, you know, supposed to be there. It was three years after you finished FAMU. It was three years after you finished FAMU and you had spent the time on Wall Street, which is a very different environment and um, probably one that felt a little bit more similar to um, HBS. But when you think about the um, just the experience at an HBCU large public institution versus the, you know, 90 person in a 900 person class section model. Um, I mean, it couldn't be more different. Right. It was, it was, it was, it was amazing, right? Like the, our section of 90 people was uh, kind, um, but they weren't always inclusive. Right. And so that was a tough thing for me to get used to. Um, I being coming from Wall Street, I was prepared not to always be included. Right. Because that's also a tough place. But um, I think I expected it to be different at Harvard. I think I expected, you know, I think I expected a similar experience that I did to FAMU. 
where you get in the classroom and we're all together now. Like we're all on the same ship. We're all in the same boat and we're going to help ourselves. We're going to help each other power through. And it was a little bit less of that and a little more Wall Street. Um, and so it was surprising, but it taught me a lot, right? It taught me a lot. And I had an amazing experience and I wouldn't give it back for the world. You know, it's, it's um, hard not to think about what the conversations we're having in society and business today, just over 10 years later, 15 years since we uh, really were, were sort of moving into that path. Right. We weren't talking about DEI. Like, I don't think we ever had a conversation about DEI. And it's just such a, I don't know, it feels so different to me. Maybe it's just because we're a little older or as you're in more of a leadership position, these things inevitably um, become more um, in the forefront, but it's hard to imagine that the conversations being had around inclusivity, for example, today aren't a lot different than they were even, you know, a decade ago. Yeah, I would agree. I remember maybe it was our second day or it definitely was within our first week. A question was asked around, you know, uh, tolerance, tolerance for homosexuality. And you have to imagine that 10 years ago, if, you know, it, it question, it was, it was a question, we had a workshop and it was related to, um, if, if you were a manager and you had folks on your staff that were gay, how would you deal with it? Amazing that that question was even asked. Um, and it was, I remember I answered the question that it wasn't around tolerance. It was around respect, like respecting the choices that other people make, respecting the lifestyle that they have, respecting who they are as a person and not just tolerating them. Uh, and it's pretty amazing that that was the question related to diversity that we kind of had to grapple with in that, in that workshop. Um, and that that was even a question. Right. Because today, like it, the world has changed a lot in 10 years. People's perspectives have changed. People's um, openness has gotten broader. Thank goodness. Right. Um, and it, I, I think the world is going in the right direction. And yes, as managers, we have to be at the front of that. We have to make sure people feel included, feel wanted, feel loved. Even at work, you have to make sure people get have that feeling because otherwise they won't they won't want to come back. Really well said, uh, Marcelia. You've been described as a longtime practitioner of black excellence, and so when you think about that, I don't know if that's something that ten years ago you also would have spoken to, but it's in the bio now. And tell me, just as you think about being one of a small group of black women at HBS, again, something we didn't really talk about. It, right. We just didn't. And that's why, you know, I'm curious, especially in the context of everything you're doing with FAMU to encourage um, everyone to, to push themselves and to give back. And we'll talk more about that, but, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you know, just for your ref reflections on, on the pros and the cons of that experience. Sure. So I think, you know, 
HBS did a good job of making sure there were four to five black students in every section of 90 people. So it wasn't, you know, incredible diversity, but there was diversity in every single class, which I think is admirable that that HBS went out and found students. I think they do a better job today than they did before. And I'm sure tomorrow they'll do a better job. But I think when we were there, they did a pretty good job. Um, you know, I think maybe, again, I expected it to feel a little bit more like FAMU where we're all in this together and that there's not real competition among us. There's competition us against the world. And I don't know if I felt that, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and uh, so, look, I think I have some, ama some amazing friends who are other Black women that went to HBS. Um, but I'm not sure that I felt the camaraderie um, that I was hoping for. Um, and again, it I kind of always hearken back to myself and my own personal you know, traits. And me being shy is probably one of the things that kept that from necessarily happening a lot and broadly. But I do think that the, the Black women at HBS, every Black woman that goes to HBS plants a flag for us. Um, Lillian Lincoln Lambert was the first Black woman that went to HBS um, in the 60s just in the 60s. Uh, and she planted that flag for us and, and we carry her legacy every day. Um, and I, I hope that regardless of whether you went to an HBCU or a PWI um, and you're a black woman that goes there, you carry on that legacy uh, because she she really created, she, she started something really great. Um, and the school wouldn't be the same without her. And I think without our voices, um, so I, I'm a, I'm proud to, to be in that, in that legacy of, of Lillian's. Really well said. And, um, you know, with that, I'd love to just talk a little bit about your journey with FAMU after business school and, um, you know, being invited to join the board of directors, I believe in, uh, 2014, 2015. Uh, what was that like? Because it was not, it was only 10 years before that you were describing yourself as the broke college student, you know, having a great time. But, you know, certainly, I don't know if you would have imagined that you'd be invited so earlier in your career uh, to step up into such a critical leadership position uh, at FAMU. Yeah. So what's amazing, and I think what we, I, the board have to do a better job at I didn't know about the endowment. I didn't know that the school had an endowment probably until 2013, eight years after I graduated because I was never asked to give to it and therefore I didn't know about it. Um, and so- So what do you mean you never asked? Because I'm sure somebody in the annual fund would say, but Marcelia, we sent you letters or we had students call you or we sent you an email. What do you mean you were never asked? No, none of that happened. <laughs> and again, I think we have to do a better job at it because um, we, at, at that time, there weren't students that were kind of on the payroll as their work study job to call alum. Um, and at that time, I didn't get emails, I actually still don't get emails. Um, at that time, 
I'm not sure that the school knew my address. Um, and so maybe I got mail, but probably went to my parents' house. Um, I don't think that we as a school, certainly been, we've gotten better now, we could still be better, have done a great job at outreach to alumni, not with regard to rah, 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 you went to FAMU, be proud, but with regard to rah, 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 you went to FAMU and you, <laughs> you should give back. Um, so I, I it, it was an, it was an education to be, to join the board. Certainly, excuse me, certainly I felt very honored to join the board. There's a gentleman named Shundron Thomas, who's now the, I think the CEO of Northern Trust Asset Management Business, who sat on the board, who invited me to join because he wanted more people with investment acumen. Um, now, I'm a salesperson. I'm a dumb salesperson. I got no acumen, but I do know a little bit more than the average bear about um, asset allocation, about managers, about portfolio management, manager selection. And so, you know, thanks to him, I got to join the board and it feels like every day I add value. Every single day I add value to that board because this is my space. I'm in the mix. I know what's going on and I can share the little bit that I know with the board and on the investment committee. So it's, um, it's my highest honor to serve on that board um, to help manage our endowment. I tell our consultant probably every time I talk to them, you know, this is a special pool of capital. Every single dollar is hard fought to get. Nobody's writing us, you know, McKinsey Scott's not writing us $40 million checks. These are checks that come $5, $10, $1,000 at a time from grandmas, from uh, you know, people who don't have a whole bunch of discretionary income, but they give back anyway, from life insurance policies, from companies that have a legacy of Rattler employees that say, gosh, well, if we've got you, we wanna, we wanna help support the next you know, generation of you. And so I take this job so incredibly seriously um, because I know how those dollars got to our portfolio. And every decision is about making sure we grow and manage those dollars in the most um, prudent way possible. And so when you think about the biggest opportunities for FAMU to grow philanthropy uh, based on what you know, what are some of the areas that you're excited about in the coming years? Look, I'm actually excited about alumni engagement and making sure people are aware that we have an endowment, making sure they're aware that for every time they give, they're supporting us, whether it's they give $10 or more, they're helping increase our participation rate. And that is critical, right? You know, as a fundraiser or in the fundraising field that participation rates from students, participation rates from alumni, they get more dollars. So I'm excited about us broadening the pool of donors, um, which is part of what my, you know, $100,000 challenge was supposed to be about making folks aware and, and, and 
encouraging, inviting new donors, whether, you know, they're students or not, alumni or not, to be aware of the great things that Florida A&M does, that we graduate more, you know, Black pharmacy doctors um, than anywhere in the country, that we graduate Black engineers and Black architects, that we have you know, a bunch of research going on, agricultural um, and other science research at the school, that we have a fantastic, well-known um, business school that sends kids to the street, sends kids to the valley, sends, you know, students all around this world making a huge impact. Um, and I really just want folks to know, new donors, new potential donors to know that their dollars go to those students, right? We paid out $16 million last year in scholarships to students. Um, that's critical. That's important work that I'm doing, that all the folks on the board are doing to grow the pool of dollars in order to send more students to school. Um, our, our kind of moniker at Florida A&M, we call ourselves the College of Love, of Love and Charity. Um, it's about loving students. It's about making sure that their pathways are clear. It's about educating every kind of student that comes to our door, not just the national merit students, right? Not just the top of the top, but everyone. That's the legacy of Florida A&M and a lot of HBCUs. Um, and that endowment helps us to support that legacy and extend that legacy for many, many more years. The passion with which you speak about all of this, Marcelia, is, I mean, it gets, it gets me fired up because it's, it's why it, it aligns with my experience. It's about access and affordability and impact. And uh, it makes me really happy to be able to be working in this field and, and, um, and collaborating directly with, with FAMU. And I know there's a lot more we can do there together, but I do want to know as it relates to your challenge, the hundred thousand dollar challenge, getting invited to be the commencement speaker, just walk me through that chain of events. And then I'm going to drop uh, one of your quotes into um, the chat because I, I can't read it. I want you to read it, uh, but give me the setup before you do. Got it. So um, I got a call 7 a.m. in the morning one day from the head of the foundation, who also actually used to be my organizational behavior professor, Dr. Uh, Shante Friday. And she called and like it's six o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning on the West Coast. I'm getting ready for work. And I hear her say something about commencement speak. And I was like, oh, does she need an option? Like, I've got lots of options for her. I got lots of suggestions. Dr. Friday, what are you saying? She's like, no, we want you to be the commencement speaker. I stopped in my tracks. I'm like, me of all people? Why? And she said that she and Dr. Robinson had discussed it and they thought that I had something to say and that the student should hear it. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> Well, if you believe it, I believe it now too. Um, so that that was how it happened. It was a total shock. Um, I literally couldn't sleep for the first two weeks. I was running on fumes because I was so nervous about not having the right things to say. Um, you know, when Oprah goes and gives a speech, she gives away cars. When Robert Smith does a does a commencement speech, he speech he wipes out student debt. What was I going to do? Like 
say, you know, rah, rah, do a good job going forward and here's your charge. I mean, I didn't really think I had anything profound to say or anything to give. Um, and as I mentioned in my speech, I just decided to give the students myself, give them a real version of me, talk about obstacles, talk about um, challenges, talk about pathways forward, and let students know that like, even if you look so polished from the outside, um, you can be a real person and you can support the people around you instead of being selfish. I think that today, you know, whether it's people that are our age or much younger than us, there is a wave across U.S. culture, but I dare say it's global, to be so inwardly focused um, and to be so um, to be so self-centered because, like, it's allowed. It's it's um, you're supposed to be focused on yourself. I have a different view of that. I think that if you focus on other people. Your, yourself will be taken care of. I'm not saying that like you should only, you should you should forego self-care, right? But I do think that overall, if we think about community, everybody in our community, um, not just the people that look like us, not just the people that have similar backgrounds, not the people that remind ourselves of us, but the less fortunate of us, the people that haven't gotten the right exposure. I think that all those things are really important to helping us all press forward. Because if the least of us doesn't make it, then who, who are we, right? Um, and so that's, that's what I tried to give in my speech. Um, I tried to make sure students walked into this world thinking about us, not me. Um, or, and so that, that's what I decided to give them instead of uh, wiping out their student debt. So, but, but beyond that, I thought, okay, well, the one thing I can do, because several of my board members, fellow board members have created endowed chairs, um, or created their own kind of pieces of the endowment where they've given $100,000 or more. And just because I'm probably the youngest person on the board doesn't mean that I can't step up to the challenge. So I thought, what a better time to do it. To give to the school in a substantial way, yes. Most importantly, to inspire people around me to also give. That was that was my tool. That's what I gave. That's what I tried to give to the school um, that weekend. Uh, more donors, <laughs> more donors. That, that was that was my attempted gift. Ho hopefully it works. And so you're giving the speech and uh, you started by saying, I hope you'll consider supporting the endowment. And like you said, you didn't know what the endowment was until years after you graduated. Right. Now you're speaking to graduating seniors. Uh, just tell me a little bit more about what you said and then the reaction that you've uh, received. Sure. So, you know, basically I, I said that one, I wanted them to be aware that there was an endowment. So that's part of why I said that during the speech. Um, but then two, I wanted them, you know, at HBS, our first year, not even before we graduated, our first year, we were asked to participate in a giving challenge, at least $10. Everybody participates. There's a little bit of peer pressure going on there, but the goal is to get to 100% participation um, in your class. And I know that participation matters. Um, 
it inspires, it supports new donors, um, big donors, small donors. And so I was trying to give them a little taste of that by just asking everyone to participate. Um, and so that was that was part of me just saying, look, um, give, give what you can uh, to, to the students and to the, to the broader audience. Um, and I think what was really important about what I said was that regardless of whether you paid a bunch of tuition or you didn't, whether you had trouble with the um, uh, financial aid office or you didn't, whether you had to stand in line for whatever service or you didn't, it doesn't actually matter. What matters is the people that come after you, your experience is irrelevant. You made it through, you graduated, you're part of the legacy now. It's about this collective success, right? It's, it's about creating a way for the people beyond, behind you so that they don't have to experience the same things. And we all know that state schools are less funded than private schools. Black state schools are even less so funded and we can get into all the metrics and the rubrics as to why, but Florida A&M is less funded on a per student basis than FSU, right across the railroad tracks. That shouldn't make a difference as to your experience and as to your willingness to give back. So that, that was it, it not said in, in such a direct way during my speech, but that was really the goal there. It feels like you planted your own flag that day and throughout your life, you've planted various flags that others look to and can strive to achieve. What was the response either immediately or uh, in the ensuing months from the student population, from the FAMU uh, uh, alumni and friends population? Were people reaching out to you on social media? I mean, kind of what, what has the response been so far? Yeah, so a lot of people have reached out, lots of alumni, lots of people I've worked with that I've crossed paths with. Um, unfortunately, we haven't gotten to that $100,000 yet, right? So I have a little bit more work to do. It wasn't just about issuing the challenge. It's about resuscitating the interest in giving. Um, and so that's going to be my next challenge for the next 12 months. I've, I, I, I took the challenge beyond just a graduation weekend and I told the um, endowment office, let's do this for a whole year. Let's find that money. Um, let's find new donors. So yes, there are gifts coming in all the time, gifts of folks uh, from folks that give regularly, gifts from corporations. I'm not counting those into my challenge. We're trying to find new dollars. We're trying to engage new donors. And so until we get to... Um, $100,000 from new donors, my work isn't done. And uh, so, so it's, it's going to be a longer road, a longer burn than I expected. Uh, but I do think that once we engage more and more and more donors, that's going to be worth to me, to me as a fundraising professional, uh, new contacts are gold gold. Yes, you can dig deeper into, into pockets that you've already tapped into, 
but new contacts and new pockets are absolutely gold. And so that is what my mission is for the next mm -hmm. year to hand over to Florida A&M new contacts, new pockets, new sources for fundraising. And then $100,000. <laughs> Celia, I would be remiss if I didn't offer to uh, brainstorm some ideas there. We've got maybe Ooh, some tricks up our sleeve that could help. And given that FAMU is a great EverTrue uh, partner and you're a great friend, we'd be crazy not to go and attack that together. So I'm going to make that some follow-up homework for our team um, so I'm going to come back to you real soon with some ideas to get those donors and get those dollars out of your pocket a little sooner. All right. Okay. I love it. And I so very much appreciate it. Um, that, that's the power of HBS, right? Connecting people that care, people with similar missions, they find them, they find each other, right? And uh, some kind of way you and I found each other in the same section um, and stayed connected and are on this fundraising and alumni engagement journey together. Um, and I appreciate all the support I can get. Well, it has been so fun for us to have the kind of that common thread to be able to stay connected periodically over the last few years. It was uh, even more fulfilling to hear uh, your story, more of your story directly. And like I said, I, I feel, uh, a little guilty that we we've never really talked about all of those details um, in those couple of years, but um, I feel like I know you better now. And uh, Harvard Business School's mission is to educate leaders who make a difference in the world. And I can't think of uh, anybody who embodies that more than you, Marcelia. So I wish you the absolute best on your professional journey, on your journey with FAMU. Uh, and I'm super excited to continue to stay friends and, and partners on that journey. Well, I appreciate it, Brent. And uh, I, I couldn't have said it better. Um, I very much appreciate it. Um, we have a whole lifetime to get to know each other, right? Like <laughs> we have a whole lifetime to stay connected uh, and not just to look at the future, but kind of explore the past and, and figure out the way forward. So I'm excited about it. Super well said, Marcelia. Uh, thank you so much. And if you are a FAMU Rattler that hasn't donated yet and you're listening to this podcast, let's go. Even if you're not and you want to stay in touch with Marcelia, look her up uh, on LinkedIn. She's listed uh, on the FAMU board uh, and just somebody that uh, I hope we can continue to collaborate with. So with all of that, Marcelia, thank you. And Brent, is gonna, yeah, I'm gonna sign off here from, I think the last time this, uh, this year for a Raise podcast from Iowa. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.